Good morning, everybody. Great to see you all. And uh, as Ron just said, we're starting a new speaking series for this that will take us through uh, most of this autumn term called Origins, and it's based on uh, Genesis chapters 1 to 11, because we do find the origins of pretty much everything in those first 11 chapters of Genesis. Uh, There are some foundational themes and issues and problems that the rest of the Bible is then responding to and working out. But when we look at life and we look at the world through the lens of Genesis 1 to 11, it makes a lot of sense of why things are as they are. And sometimes, in some cases, why things are as bad as they are. But it also shows us where our hope lies and where the hope of the world lies. And so we'll be looking at themes like the origins of humanity. And all of that means work and rest, sin and hope, suffering, the origins of suffering, grace, covenant, uh, nations. And today, it's the origins of life. So just a small one to kick off with. So let's turn to a very familiar passage of Scripture, a very contentious passage of Scripture. It's very easy to find because it's right at the very beginning of your Bible after the, the notes and the preface you know, and all that kind of thing. Genesis chapter 1. I'm not going to read the whole chapter because I think for most of us, even if you're not normally in church, I think this is a very familiar piece of literature, piece of writing. Uh, I'm going to read the first few verses to give us the flavor of what's going on here. So it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. And so God made the expanse and he separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And it continues in this pattern. God said, and it was so. God said this, and it was so. And God saw that it was good, and it was evening, and it was morning. Continues in that pattern, and God creates land, sea, vegetation, sun, moon, and stars, creatures in the sea, creatures in the air, creatures on the land. And finally, as the pinnacle of all creation, God makes humans. And then verse 31, at the end of the chapter, it says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So Genesis chapter 1. The the biblical account of creation, the biblical account of the origins of the universe, the origins of life. Now, I know that there will be certain questions uh, or or perhaps some very firmly held views, opinions, beliefs about things like evolution, the age of the earth, dinosaurs, fossils, all those kind of things. And there will be other things as we get further into the series, like, you know, who was Cain's wife and what about, how come there was a city there? And what about the flood? Was that global or was, it, or was it local? Now, those kind of issues, as interesting as they are, as interesting things they are to discuss, we're not going to be addressing directly on Sunday mornings because actually I don't think that they're the main point of what the author is trying to say. You might disagree and that's okay. But what we are going to do is hold an origin seminar uh, on the evening of Sunday the 12th of November. Um, and because they are interesting questions, and they're important questions, and it'll be a chance to look more closely at those kind of issues that I just talked about, evolution and all those kind of things, and the different ways that they can be addressed. It'll be a mixture of presentation and Q&A, 
Uh, and so that might be a really helpful evening for some of you if you have those kind of questions, you're just interested in that side of things, or you have firmly held views about some of those things. So more details over the next couple of weeks uh, about that seminar, evening of Sunday the 12th of November. But I, I do think it's unfortunate that discussion of Genesis 1 tends to go straight to those kind of issues. It tends to go straight to the how and the what of creation. Well, at least in our modern Western society it does. It hasn't for the majority of our history and in most of the world. But how? How did God create? How long did it take? Was it billions of years or was it the seven little days? And what about evolution? What about carbon dating and all those kind of things? Now, my personal opinion, and again, some of you might disagree, but my opinion is that Genesis 1 doesn't try to address those questions that the author of Genesis isn't trying to communicate so much about the how and the what, but rather the who and the why of creation. And I think they're far more important questions to ask. And so it's on those two questions that I'm going to focus today, the who of creation and the what, uh, sorry, the why of creation. So for me, a far more important question than the process of how creation happened is how did it all start? How did we get here? How, how did life come to exist? How does something come out of nothing? And all scientists would now agree, and they haven't always, it's a relatively recent thing in the last century, that the universe had a beginning, which of course is what the Bible has been saying all along. But that the universe, about 30, more than 13 billion years ago, there was a big bang, and that was what kicked off the development of the universe, and then eventually in time, probably four, three or four billion years ago, life starts and then life evolves and that kind of thing. But here's the question, even if you accept all of that, what caused the Big Bang? And there's no answer for that. What caused the Big Bang? Where did the material, if there was nothing before, where did the materials for the Big Bang come from to cause this cosmic explosion? Everything that is has to have a cause. And the key thing that the author of Genesis is trying to communicate about creation is that the cause is God. However you think it happened, however long you think it took, the cause is God. An eternal God who's outside of time, outside of space. Now, of course, certain sections of the scientific community would just say, well, that's totally ridiculous. That's totally irrational. It's on a par with believing in fairies. Or they would say, it's just a lazy way of trying to explain something you don't understand. To say, well, it's a bit of a mystery to us, so we're just going to say God did it. And they would think that, well, that's, that's really, really rather lazy. I was listening to a debate between Richard Dawkins. I'm sure you know who Richard Dawkins is. He wrote The God Delusion about 10 years ago, and he's a, I'd call him an evangelistic atheist, um, ironically, but he is. Uh, I was listening to a debate between him and, and a, a Christian scientist called John Lennox, during which Dawkins referred to it as creationist lunacy. Right? Creationist lunacy. Now, you do realize that if you are a Christian, you are by definition a creationist. Not necessarily a young earth, seven literal day kind of creationist, but you are a creationist and therefore a lunatic in Dawkins' eyes because while there may be differing opinions among Christians about how God created and how long it took, we all fundamentally believe that God is behind it, that God did it, that God created everything and it was good. That is the message of Genesis 1 in a nutshell. God created everything and it was good. But what I want to do is for a few minutes... Bear with me here, just take the Bible out of the picture, pretend it doesn't exist, and ask that question, how did we get here? How is this universe and, and life possible? What are the options? And how plausible are they? 
And you know what? There seem to be only three possible options that are put out there. Three possible options for the beginning of the universe. Luck, we're here by chance, it just happened. The multiverse theory, which I'll explain briefly in a minute, and a creator. Three options for the beginning of the universe that all arguments that are out there seem to come under. Luck, multiverse, creator. So let's have a, a, a think about some of those. My guess is that the most commonly held opinion in our society would be the first one. That it just happened. Probably because a lot of people just have never thought about it, really. It just happened. The right things came together at the right time, and the universe began and developed, evolved, and then life began and developed and evolved, and, well, here we are. And so we're, we're the result of a very lucky accident. Um, so let's have a, a little look at that. For our universe to be possible, and by that I just mean the, the planets and stars, not let alone life and let alone truly complex things like the eyeball. If you've ever seen how complex the eyeball is as an organ, it's incredible. But just for planets and stars to be possible, there are 15 things called constants. 15 constants. A constant is a number that refers to a physical law, a measure, a value that refers to physical laws like gravity. Uh, like the rate of expansion of the universe, the number of stars in the universe, things like that. And there are 15 of these physical laws, these constants, that have to be exactly what they are to an accuracy of at least one part in a million. And some of them are a lot more than that, as we'll see in a minute. So if you take gravity, for example, if gravity was a millionth part stronger or a millionth part weaker, a millionth different from what it actually is, the value it actually is, no planets and no stars, let alone life. If the rate of expansion is the tiniest fraction different, no planets, no stars. So 15 of these constants, so if you try to picture it like this, if you had 15 roulette wheels, enormous roulette wheels, that had a million numbers on each, that's, that's a big roulette wheel, right? And you're looking at these 15 roulette wheels and you're thinking, I've got to get all of these bang on to win the prize. And so you look, well, I might as well give it a go, why not? And so you look at the first one and say, well, that, this one's got to land on 347,982. And you spin the roulette wheel and it just spins round and round, slows down, slows down, and it's like, yes, dead on. It's a, that's amazing, what are the chances? And you think, well, actually, it's about one in a million chance. <laughs> that's amazing, well, that's very, very lucky indeed. And you move to the second one. Now you realize, of course, as soon as you move to the second one, to get two in a row, you're now talking about a one in a million million chance, a million times a million chance. And so you can see how the odds, as you get further down the line, start to get incalculable. And you spin the second one, it's like, I can't believe it. <laughs> two in a row, that's dead on. And the third one, and the fourth one, and so on, and so on, and so on, until you get to the 15th roulette wheel. And you are just reeling at this point. You just say, this is incredible. How is this happening? And you spin the 15th roulette wheel, and it goes round and round. And you're like, yes, it's worked, it's amazing. And then it goes, and you've got to start all over again. And there's no planets, and there's no stars, let alone any possibility of life. Now, when you think of it like that, you start to see the utter improbability of this as an option. You, you can't prove that it's not true. You can't prove that that's not how the universe began. I don't mean roulette wheels, but you know, the 15, the 15 constants. You can't prove it, but it really doesn't sound very likely. You sort of think, well, maybe you know, unlikely things happen sometimes. I went to see Wick and Wanderers yesterday, and they won. Uh, unlikely things happen, but this is on a different scale. The universe appears 
to be very, very finely tuned for life. And that's a phrase we'll hear from many scientists. Now, that's based on each constant being accurate to just one part in a million. Some of them are far more mind-blowing than that. So one of the constants is the balance between expansion and contraction. Apparently, that has to differ from equality by not more than 1 in 10 to the power of 60. That's that. 1 with 60 zeros after it. These are numbers we don't understand. I don't know what that number is, really. But um, John Polkinghorne, who was the professor of mathematics, uh, mathematical physics at Cambridge University many years ago, he likened the, the, the probability of this one constant being what it is, he likened it to aiming a target an inch wide, the other side of the observable universe, which is something like 45 billion light years away. By the way, one light year is about 5.88 trillion miles. So it's 45 billion of those away, and, and hitting this target an inch wide first time. That is not a bet that I would take. That's just one of those constants. And that particular roulette wheel doesn't have a million numbers on it. It has a million, 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 million numbers on it. And it lands on exactly the right one, along with the other 14 wheels. The odds against the universe happening by chance are astronomical. They're incalculable. They're impossible. Logically, it is the most implausible of the three options. To borrow Dawkins' language, you could maybe say that it would be lunacy to suggest that luck is the rational explanation for the universe and for life. So another theory that's been put forward is the theory of the multiverse. The idea that actually there are billions, trillions, an infinite number of universes out there. And we happen to live in the one where the conditions for life exist. Because if you've got an infinite number of something, well, then it significantly increases your chances of, of hitting somewhere along the line, there will be one which does have those values. It's like if you're rolling dice and you're waiting for a certain outcome, your chances are significantly increased if you're rolling infinite numbers of dice. Yeah? So that's the idea of the multiverse. We happen to live in the one where there is the conditions for life. Now, you can't prove that that's not true. But neither can you prove scientifically that it is true. Just as you can't prove scientifically or disprove God, you, you can't. So it comes back to the question of plausibility. If we rule out luck as being so wildly implausible that it's impossible, it's not worth considering, well then which of the remaining two options, multiverse or creator, is more likely, is more or less plausible? So a philosopher called Alvin Plantinga gave this illustration. He said, if you're playing uh, poker in a casino, and the dealer deals themselves straight aces 20 times in a row. What are you going to think at this point? Are you going to think, well, out of all the millions and billions of games of poker that have ever taken place and are taking place and will take place in this world, this is bound to happen in one of them, and I'm just unlucky enough to be in that one. I would suggest not. I would suggest you're going to say you're cheating. You are cheating. You would assume there is intelligence and design at work here. It's the natural assumption. Now, there's no evidence for the multiverse theory. And by definition, there never can be any evidence for this theory because we are in this universe, and so everything we see and observe is within our own universe. And it feels like somebody saying, well, I, I can't go with the luck option because that's just so impossible. I can't consider that. But I can't, or I refuse to believe in God or a creator, so multiverse. Here we go. 
It's willful blindness. It's a theory that has no evidence and can never have any evidence. It doesn't sound very scientific to me. Now, let me just say at this point, I'm not a scientist, uh, and, and there are other people who could explain this probably far better than me. This is, a, this is a very simplistic overview. I'll point you to some resources you can look at if, you, if you're interested in this kind of thing in a minute. But you come then to the option of a creator, and not necessarily the Christian God, by the way. This doesn't necessarily mean the God we believe in is, the, therefore, everyone has to believe in that, but the idea that there is a creator, that there is intelligent design behind the universe and the existence of life. This seems to be the most plausible option, partly because of the sheer unlikeliness of the other two options. None of these three options can be proved or disproved scientifically, but unlike the other two, I would suggest that there is a heavy weight of evidence, both physical and experiential, to point towards a creator. But some will not have that. Some will refuse to believe that. There's a well-known quote by Douglas Adams, who wrote Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He was a well-known atheist. This quote's also quoted in Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. And he said, isn't it enough to see that a garden is beautiful without having to believe that there are fairies at the bottom of it too? In other words, can't we just look at the universe and see that it's beautiful, that it's ordered, and just leave it there without having to mention God? And clearly the answer is no. You can't do that. Gardens don't make you believe in fairies. They do make you believe in a gardener. When you see a, a garden that is so beautifully formed, and, and it, you assume a gardener. You assume design. And when you observe this universe that is so finely tuned for life and so ordered and so beautiful, and, and the more we discover, the more it confirms it. The, dry, the, the natural assumption is a designer. So this false dichotomy between science and religion, science and Christianity, like they're, like they're at loggerheads, like they oppose each other. No, no, it's quite the opposite. In fact, science rose out of belief in God. It rose, the, the, the driving force behind the rise of science in the 16th and 17th centuries was a belief in God. Because we expected to find laws and patterns because we believed in a lawgiver. And this creation was worth exploring because, the, because if God creates it, then it is of immense value. It is worth finding out about. It has meaning. Isaac Newton, when he discovered the law of gravity, he didn't say, well, great, I, un I understand it now, so I've, I don't need God because I've explained him away. No, it's because he understood it and its complexity that his praise of God increased. It, was an, it led him to worship, and that would be echoed by many modern scientists and philosophers. So just briefly show you these. Francis Collins, really, I'm in the middle of this at the moment, really, really good book. He was the director of the Human Genome Project, which mapped out the DNA code, an incredible piece of work. It led him to worship. He didn't see it as, oh, well, now we've explained God. No, 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 no. It led him to, to marvel at God. Really good book, The Language of God. Um, Anthony Flew, sort of a philosopher, he was a well-known atheist, changed his mind because of what he saw, wrote a book called There Is a God. And Keith Ward, why there almost certainly is a God. And then John Lennox, who I mentioned in that debate, God's Undertaker has science buried God. If you're interested in this kind of stuff, and I appreciate not all, not all of you will be, but if you like to kind of find out a bit more, I'd recommend those as good starting points. I'd, I'd say the Francis Collins book particularly, uh, I'm really enjoying reading that at the moment. So here's the thing, science has not explained the beginning of the universe, and science certainly doesn't explain God away. Actually, science only works because of God. 
And the more we discover, both in the vastness of the whole universe and in the micro level of DNA and the complexity of cells and all that, just amazing things, it just makes the case for an intelligent designer even stronger. And you can believe in a creator and you can still believe in the Big Bang and evolution and all those things. Again, I know some will disagree with that, but we'll come to that when we do the evening seminar. But Genesis 1 is very clear. In the beginning, God. God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything and it was good. The who of creation, the who of the origins of the universe, the origins of life according to Genesis 1 is God. And as we can see, there's nothing remotely irrational about believing that. Incidentally, before just, just before looking at the why of creation, a common objection or a common question at this point would be, well then who created God? And you think, oh, oh no. Just to say, that is, of course, a totally illogical question. It doesn't make sense, because it assumes a created God, and no one believes in a created God. It's like asking, to whom is the bachelor married? It's a nonsensical question, because by definition, a bachelor is not married. He cannot be in the category of bachelor and also be in the category of married. You can't, the two don't overlap. It's a nonsensical question. Now, by definition, God is the uncreated creator of the universe because to create, something has to be outside of creation and its boundaries. And that's the fundamental distinction between God and the universe. It came to exist. He did not. Okay, so don't worry about that question. Now, why? Why did God create the universe? Why did God create life? Well, that revolves really around who God is and what he's like. And we don't get the full picture of that in Genesis chapter one, but there are clues. And they're clues that are then borne out by the rest of the Bible. First, that he is a Trinitarian God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So uh, we have the Spirit hovering over the waters in creation. Um, by the way, the Spirit is not some impersonal mist or force. He is a person. The verb to hover is like the verb that you might use for a mother eagle hovering over her offspring to, to protect them, to feed them. It's very personal. So you have the Spirit hovering over the waters. You have God the Father speaking things into creation. Let there be light, and there was light. He speaks things into creation with his word. Now, elsewhere, we discover something about the word of God and why the word is so powerful and can create, and it's because the word is a person. Jesus, the Son of God. And so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then verse 26, God says, let us make mankind in our image. So there's clues everywhere in Genesis 1 about what God is like, that who he is, that he's a community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each person fully God, but there is one God. It's one of those mind-blowing things that we can't quite wrap our minds around, but this Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity, eternally coexisting in this circle of mutual love and appreciation and delight and beauty and joy, and here we have the Trinity doing creation together. And it's like they're saying, let's expand this circle. Let this joy and this love, this delight, this beauty overflow through creation. And so that's something about who God is and that tells us why he created. But then we see a bit about what he's like as well. Because there's this phrase that's repeated again and again. And God saw that it was good. God's looking at what he makes. He makes it and says, it's good. Oh, that, that's good. It's good. He's taking such delight in his creation. He loves to create. We see this about him. He loves creating through his word. He takes delight in creating because everything he creates reflects his glory. 
That's what creation's about. It's about reflecting the glory of God. So the colors that we see, God invented colors. And he looks at them and says, that's good. That reflects me. That reflects what we like. It's good. And the variety of uh, vegetation, trees, plants that we see, from the massive, most impressive trees that we see uh, to the, the smallest things that we can't see because they're so small, and yet they're so unfeasibly complex in design and construction. God looks and says, it's good. It's good. Creatures in the air, on the land, in the sea, many of which we haven't even discovered yet, discovering new things all the time, particularly down in the, in the sea, but there are some truly weird and wonderful things we have discovered that make you think, why did God make that? And God says, it's good. It's funny, isn't it? Duckbill platypus. It's good, isn't it? And look at that. Look, wait till you discover this one. Oh, it's good. Sunsets. God created sunsets. And not just on Earth. Presumably every star in the universe creates a sunset somewhere. It's good. God delights in his creation. Then God creates this community of beings who can reflect his glory so well, sing praises to God and just, God looks at them and, and it's like he completes that circle by looking at humans and saying, now that, that's it. That is very good. That is very good. It's beautiful. It's just God's delight and adoration. Creation is all about community, an overflow of God's community, God's love, God's joy, God's delight, God's beauty, and it's all about the glory of God. It's all about reflecting his glory. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Have you ever, we've sung songs about this this morning. Have you ever looked up on a summer's evening where you're out in the countryside, there's no light coming in, and you look up at the skies, and it's, oh, that's amazing. The heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, just have a look at this. If you put that picture of the earth up. So, I mean, it's beautiful. And what the astronauts must have thought when they first went up into space and saw this, just, that's, that's where we live. It's just beautiful. And when you look at Earth compared to some of the other planets, if you flick to the next one, Earth looks very beautiful indeed. It's pretty impressive. But then, if you look at Earth compared to some of the other planets, wow, there's Earth like the size of a pea. Compared to Jupiter, and Jupiter is immense. It's, it's mind-blowingly immense. You think, that is impressive. God created these. You know, when we sing that song, the creator of the rolling spheres, that's what it's talking about. God created these. But you think, that's impressive. You look at the planets next to the sun. So Earth is a full stop here. Jupiter's like a pea now. Look at the sun. That's a star. It's incredible. It's but, but the sun isn't that impressive. Compare the sun to some of the other stars. There's the sun, smaller than a pea. Jupiter's one pixel in size here. Earth's invisible at this scale. And you've got Arcturus. But Arcturus actually isn't all that impressive. Because when you put it next to Antares, the sun is now a pixel in size next to Antares. I think Antares is something like the 16th brightest star in the sky. It's, it's mind-blowing. But in Genesis chapter 1, it's almost a throwaway line. He also made the stars. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's just two words, also stars. Also stars. 
meaning that and the other billions and trillions of stars that are in the universe, the trillions of galaxies that are in the universe. He also made the stars, such is the sovereignty and the power of God. The psalmist says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. That's the psalm the astronauts quoted when they rounded the moon and saw the earth. Just awe in the true sense of the word. We use the word awesome a bit too freely. This is awesome. The vastness, the scale, the beauty that we see in the universe, it is awesome and it makes us feel very small indeed. But actually that awe that we see there is also in nature that we see around us. The creation we see every day reflects God's glory. So Romans 1 says that mankind is without excuse because creation displays the glory of God. What is invisible has been made visible through what has been made. There's no excuse for not acknowledging God and not turning to him. Even Richard Dawkins said this during that debate I was listening to. He said, when you consider the beauty of the world and you wonder how it came to be what it is, you are naturally overwhelmed with a feeling of awe, a feeling of admiration, and you almost feel a desire to worship something, which is, of course, a desire he doesn't give into because he thinks that science emancipates us from that frees us from that slavery of having to worship a creator. Although, I have to say, where he gets within his worldview any notion of awe and beauty, I have no idea. I don't know where he has a reference point for that. But I had a moment like this the other day. Uh, I was driving the girls to school, my daughters at school along the back roads down Commonwood Lane, and it was one of those mornings, unlike this morning, it was one of those autumn mornings where the sun was out and, uh, you know, just revealing this vivid display of changing colours on the trees and there's this low mist hugging the, the ground and it's kind of going around the contours of all these hills and the sun shining through it and there's dew on the hedgerows and because the sun's out, the dew is starting to evaporate but it's then condensing again in the cool air and so there's steam rising, there's mist on the ground, there's steam rising from the hedgerows and I had a bit of a poetic moment. It doesn't happen to me very often. But I said to Anna, my daughter, I said, look at that. Look at that steam. Look at the mist. It's like, it's like praises rising from nature to its creator. It's like nature is singing a song of praise to God. And it was like that. It was amazing. It's like nature reveling in the pleasure, the delight of its creator, reveling in its beauty, but actually knowing it was just a reflection of the beauty and glory of God. Nature praising God. God. And those things do affect us. Nature, beauty, splendor, they do, it moves us when we see it. But it does something else in us as well. And if you've ever found yourself looking at something that's so beautiful, so magnificent, that yes, there's a sense of awe, but there's also a sense of longing. There's something else, a sense of yearning that you can't quite put your finger on. Or when you're listening to a piece of music, because that's all part of creation, a piece of music that it not only moves you because it's beautiful, but it creates a longing in you for something. And C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He says, we do not want merely to see beauty. We want something else which can hardly be put into words. To be united with the beauty that we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. That's why we have peopled air and earth and water with gods and goddesses, nymphs and elves. That's why the poets tell us such lovely falsehoods. They talk as if the west wind could really sweep into a human soul, but it can't. 
At present, we're on the outside of the world. We're the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see. And Simone Vale said, the love we feel for nature is incomplete and painful. It calls us in, but we can't get in. Because we know that we're part of nature. We know we're part of creation, a special part of creation. But it's like we know something's wrong. It's like we can't join in with that joy of nature, the song of creation, nature that seems to say, look, I know the delight of my maker. I know he loves me. I know he enjoys me. I know he delights in me. What we see in Genesis chapter one is that that's what we were created for. We were created to know the delight and total acceptance of our creator. Because it's about us that he said, that is very good. That is very good. It's beautiful. But we know we're not right with him. We know we're marred. We know we're flawed, corrupted. We know we've lost something. We've turned away from something that's fundamental to our sense of identity. And deep down in our soul, we need our maker to look at us like he did at first and say, that, that is very good. You are beautiful. I love you. I adore you. It's what we were made for. It's what we were created for, designed for, and it's the thing that every human heart is searching for. It's why we have longings, unfulfilled longings in our life, and we just don't know how to fill that gap. So what's the answer? Well, there's another in the beginning in the Bible. In Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. And it tells us that the Word through whom everything was created became flesh. The word who made matter became matter. Jesus himself. Jesus came, God incarnate. He came as a man. He came as one of us. And he willingly went to the cross. He chose to go to the cross. But here you see the exact opposite of what happens in Genesis 1. Because on the cross the word spoke. But there was no response. In creation God speaks. And it's, it was so. He says this and it was so. On the cross. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Nothing. There's no response. In creation, God takes what is formless and void, formless and empty, and he forms it and fills it. On the cross, it's like Jesus is becoming formless and void. He's being emptied instead of being filled. And he was forsaken. There's no spirit hovering over him, attending to him and his needs like there was in creation. The opposite of creation is happening to Jesus on the cross. It's like he was being decreated deconstructed, our maker had to come and be unmade so we could be remade, to be decreated so that we could be recreated. And when you believe that, when you believe that Jesus died on the cross for you, for your sins, for you personally, when you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, then, then you are born again. You are born again, and it's like going through a door to be on the right side of the door, to be able to join in with nature again, because now you know that God loves me. I know God loves me, and that he can now look at you in Christ, in his beautiful, beloved son, and look at you and now say, it's very good. That is delightful, that is very good, and that's what we're designed for, to know his delight, to have his loving gaze upon us, to hear him express his love, his delight, his perfect acceptance of us, and until we hear that through the Spirit of God in us, then our lives are formless and void, empty, gaping hole that we try to fill with everything other than what we really need. So just as creation started with light, and scientists and theologians would all agree with that, that the universe started with a blinding flash of light. 
in the darkness. Well, so God is still all about bringing light into very dark places through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you don't know that, you need to know it. You need to know that he was willingly forsaken so that you could be loved. He was willingly separated from his father so that you could be reconciled to God, your father. And because of who he is, because of what he's done, the father can look at you and say, that is very good. That is wonderful. And you can join in with the rest of nature. You can join with the rest of creation and know the pleasure of God and declare the glory of God, which is what you were always made to do in the first place. Genesis 1 tells us that God created everything and it was good. The rest of the Bible tells us that God is redeeming everything and it will be very good.